1 Samuel 17, beginning to read at verse 42. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy, good-looking. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Father God, we thank you for this, your word. It is our desire to continue to worship you, to delight our hearts in all your provisions, your grace, your strength, that if you are for us, who can be against us? And we pray that uh, you would stir up faith in your people as your word is applied by your Holy Spirit into our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Maybe may be seated. <clears throat> well, during the last week, I've had a war of words with at least 10 people. Now, if you saw the dialogues, the conversations, and the emails, you would say, really, was that a war? Uh, you were so mild-mannered, Phil, and uh, you didn't raise your voice at all. But it really was a clash of worldviews between two people. One of the war of words was with a member of our congregation where I was uh, gently confronting them over some sin that they wanted to be involved in and just uh, helping them to try to see from a biblical perspective rather than from uh, some of the secular arguments that were coming up and uh, trying to get them to think a little bit more consistently. Uh, another war of words was uh, on an email that I had with a, uh, a friend that I grew up with, and uh, this person was just outraged that I would believe that women should not be pastors. Just thought that was so outrageously outdated. And I kept trying to bring the conversation back to the Scriptures. And she's a professing believer. I said, no, don't you believe the Scripture? Yeah, but that was then. That's not now. And, and uh, you could see how she had been influenced by the culture and was not thinking uh, from a biblical perspective. And I'm not going to tell you all of my wars of, of words because you've had your own wars of words with family and friends. And, and uh, they may have been very mild-mannered. You may have just think, hey, that's not a war. It's just a dialogue, okay? We're both interested in the truth. But how we dialogue with one another, how you um, have a war of words with your son or your daughter or somebody else reveals a lot of what is going on in our hearts. Uh, this past week, Gary and I uh, went to talk to a politician. And actually, uh, he's been going through a gr great amount of hurt as a result of a war of words, I'm not going to reveal who his name is, uh, but we just went there to encourage him and to try to give him a little bit of perspective. But as we were dialoguing with this uh, professing believer, uh, some of the issues we're going to be looking at in this war of words uh, definitely came to the surface. For example, at one point he said, you know, when you brought up God and Scripture, 
uh, you discredited your case. Uh, you hurt your cause. And I, I know this guy's a professing believer. I said, uh, why do you think that? And he was saying, well, didn't you see the way people were snickering uh, every time God and Scripture were mentioned? And I said, oh, yeah, I did mention that. But he said, you really would be more effective if you just bring secular arguments. And I pointed out, you know, that's really impossible. Every word we've been discussing here flows from the Scripture. Everything is religious. And it's not religion or not religion. It's re- which religion, really, that we, that we are talking about. And I can really understand where this guy is coming from because there are so many cultural pressures that come upon us to try to conform to the wisdom of the world. And we think, you know, they're not going to take seriously anything except for a secular argument. We've got to use their terms, their tactics, and speak. And there's a certain sense in which we'll we'll look at that in a little bit, that there is a certain degree of truth in that. But what I want to do, even before we get into this dialogue between uh, David and Goliath, I want to give you a theology for these wars of words that we engage in. I want you to turn with me to Proverbs, Proverbs 26. And we're going to look at verses 4 and 5. And this will give us a little bit of background to what's actually happening in our passage. In verse 4, it says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. Now, what is a fool and what is folly? Well, Psalm 15 and also Psalm 53 both say, The fool has said in his heart that there is no God. And so folly is arguing or acting as if there is no God. It's basically what it is. If you agree with an unbeliever that it's quite legitimate to start with a neutral starting point without bringing God into the question at all, and that you can interpret anything in this world properly apart from God, you're going to have a very difficult time moving him from independence to dependence upon God. Why? Because you're acting independently. You're doing exactly the same thing that this other person that you are arguing with is doing. Now, you may be a Christian in name and in some doctrines, but your presuppositions, at least some of them, are really coming from independence rather than dependence. Why should he move to a dependence upon God when you've said it's quite okay to reason uh, as if your mind is the determiner of truth? He buys into that. He believes that. And so this proverb says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. Now, in this passage, David is not arguing with Goliath according to his folly. He does not adopt his assumptions, his goals, his methodology. Uh, He does not take a, a neutral stance. And if we try to appeal to unbelievers from a neutral stance, then uh, we're going to have a very difficult time uh, answering, answering him according to Uh, according to the Scriptures. What we've done, in effect, is we have dropped our armor, uh, we've dropped our sword, and we're going to be uh, disarmed with the spiritual weapons that God has prepared us uh, to engage Him with. And yet Christians answer a fool according to his folly all the time. They do it with their children. Uh, When they're arguing with their children, rather than bringing the Scriptures to bear upon the subject, they will... They use some of the wisdom of the world. One wisdom is that uh, we just might makes right. Do it or else. <laughs> Do it because I say so. 
Or we might uh, argue with them from a perspective of pragmatism or multiple warnings or negotiating. But Proverbs 26.4 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. Now the next verse, verse 5, goes on to say, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Now what's with that? Is that contradicting himself? And I would say, no, not at all. He is not contradicting himself. He is saying, once you have established that you are 100% committed to the Scriptures and God is your only reference point for truth, that's verse 4, then you can go and say, I know you don't accept this. You think this is ridiculous, but if you reject what the Scripture says and its explanation of all of life, then you will not have a foundation on which you can affirm anything, nothing whatsoever. You're using his presuppositions to disprove uh, his position. So it's a twofold methodology. First of all, you make sure that you are committed to God and his scripture, that it, you believe it, it explains all of life, and then you go and show the unbeliever that if he rejects that, he does not have a basis for anything. Now, there's many examples you could give, but what was it, two, three weeks ago when they had the GLBT um, debate at the, at the, the city hall, I um, uh, went there, and the first thing that I tried to establish was that I was coming at this from trying to present God's perspective to them. And I said they, they could not make, nor could they pawn off onto the population to make moral or neutral what God calls an abomination. God has spoken to this subject, and uh, God... Uh, disapproved of what was going on. Now, I could tell, just like Goliath, they were mocking, you know. They, they don't buy into that. They, they think that's ridiculous. So then what I did is I answered a fool according to his folly and demonstrated that based on their own presuppositions, they still should vote no on this bill. Uh, for example, one of the arguments that was brought up is that these people deserve rights like everybody else has, and I pointed out, absolutely, everybody should have rights, but can you give me one single right that I have that these GLBT people do not have? I said, you can look in vain in the Bill of Rights. Uh, they don't have, I, I don't have any rights that they don't have, but here's the problem. If you pass this bill, you are robbing me of two explicitly uh, specified rights that I have uh, in the Bill of Rights, the First Amendment and the Fourth one. Okay, you're going to be taking that away from me. And so what I was in, a, in effect doing is saying, based on your own presuppositions, you ought to vote against this. I was arguing uh, uh, with a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise uh, in his own eyes. And unfortunately, they don't give you a whole lot of time. What is it, three, five minutes? So I wrote up something, gave, gave the sheet to each of them. But I hope that this little dialogue between David and Goliath can crystallize in your mind the difference between faithful wars of words, and unfaithful wars of words. It's so easy. I've gotten myself into trouble on this uh, as well, and I think these are good challenges uh, to uh, grow in our soldiery. Now let's look first of all at the goal of the words that are found in this chapter. And I think they're stated quite well, quite well in verses 8 and 9. Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. 
If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Now, Goliath frames this argument in terms of only two alternatives. We speak of this as a false dilemma. And his false dilemma is you've got two choices, guys. You can either be slaves of Saul or you can be slaves of the Philistines. Uh, you can submit to the statism of Saul or you can submit to the statism of Uh, of the Philistines, but it didn't dawn on him there could be any other alternatives than a big state. Well, God doesn't buy into those two alternatives, and David is not about to let Goliath frame this argument. We we fall into that too easily. We allow the opponents to frame the, the limits of where this debate is going to be taking place. Well, David refuses, uh, refuses to do that. Now, I think some of the other uh, some of the other Jews may have already fallen into this because we've already seen in the past that God had rejected Saul and he gave an opportunity for the leaders of Saul to ask Saul to step down, put David in as king. And so um, they've already said, well, we'd rather have the statism of Saul. It's more comfortable than the statism of the Philistine. They've bought into this false dilemma. And there may have been other Jews who have said, no, we're going to flee or we're going to negotiate or, or, or do other things. But it doesn't appear that any of these Israelites have the big goals that David did. All this guy can do is say, well, we're between a rock and a hard place. Those are the only two choices that we have. Look at the goal of David in verse 46. Anytime you see the word that or so that later on in this verse, you know a goal is is going to be described. David said that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Very interesting. David's goal is not safety, it's not comfort. In fact, his goal is not even to win a battle for the sake of winning a battle. His goal, his passion was to see God's name lifted up. His passion was to please the Lord. And if that is not your goal in your war of words, you've already given up the whole battle right up front because you've conceded to humanism. Uh, If it's a man-centered goal, you've conceded already. You're fighting on the world's turf. And let me apprise you of something. If you're fighting on the world's turf, uh, you're going to likely lose. The world of flesh and the devil have had a lot of... um, (laughs) <laughs> a lot of uh, experience in fighting there, and you're going to have God himself against you, so you don't have a chance. Now, I've had people say, well, that's ridiculous, Phil. That's ridiculous, because if we don't fight on their terms, we don't have a chance. You know, if we don't play dirty, we don't have a chance. Or a politician might say, hey, if we don't take some of the pork, our state doesn't have a chance. Uh, they're, 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 they're thinking in terms of horizontal Uh, strategies. And uh, basically that response is saying, that's ridiculous, Phil. We can't win this battle with spiritual weapons because Goliath is fighting against us. Open your eyes, okay? It's Goliath. It's not just something small. Now, don't get me wrong. We saw last week that we can use means. We must use means. David used a sling. He used a stone that he was uh, used to using. He used words, but he only used means that were under God's authority, consistent with his word. He never made uh, compromises. And too many wars of words that evangelicals engage in, God's name is not mentioned. His word is not brought to bear. And uh, if they do have David's goal, they're certainly hiding it. David's goal was far bigger than winning one measly little battle. Far bigger than that. Uh, D.L. Moody, when he was dying, told his son, 
If God be your partner, make your plans big. Think about that. That's That's just an amazing statement. If God be your partner in your business, make your plans big. Why? Because you've got a great big partner. You've know, you, you got, you got an advantage over everybody else. If God be your partner in your family, make your plans big. If God be your partner in your church, make your plans big. If God be your partner in politics, make your plans big. Do you have a vision that is bigger than yourself? If not, you need to ask God to grip your heart, to give Him such a closeness to Him that His vision grabs your heart and drives you in everything that you do. Because really, your methodology reflects your goals. Too many people have a humanistic methodology which almost always guarantees they've got humanistic goals. Our ultimate goal must be to glorify God in absolutely everything that we think, say, and do. For example... Uh, somebody might be getting on your case for homeschooling, and uh, as you're arguing with that person, you might be embarrassed for giving your real reasons for homeschooling, and so you're trying to identify with them, and you say, well, the reason we homeschool is because, you know, the academics aren't really very good in the public schools, and we don't really like the socialization there, and besides, Abraham Lincoln uh, homeschooled, and and don't get me wrong, it's okay to use those kinds of arguments. In fact, that's the second part of the apologetics, verse 5 of uh, uh, Proverbs 26, right? But if that's all that you do, answering a man according to his folly, if that's all that you do and you never bring God into it, what you're, you're failing to do is you're failing to attack the very roots of their rebellion, okay? So we, we've, got to, we've got to challenge the root. The second thing I see in this war of words was the stark contrast between Goliath and David in their assumptions and in their expectations. Now, initially, Goliath is totally surprised by what he saw, and then he's offended. But in verse 42, it shows Goliath's assumptions, his expectations of what he thinks should be coming out against him. And when the Philistine looked about, so he's looking around him, seeing, is there anybody going to be coming up against me, and what does he look like? says, when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him. For he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking. I guess that implies that Goliath wasn't too good-looking. Uh, you know, he probably figured anybody that's worth fighting him has probably got enough uh, wounds from wars that he's ugly as a stick. But in any case, he's, he's looking out and he's thinking there's got to be an incredibly strong human because he's pitting human strength against human strength. He's not expecting a miracle, and he's not expecting the gods to intervene. Uh, he's probably never seen the gods intervene on his behalf. And now he's religious. We're going to be seeing he is very religious. He does believe in gods, but he's really trusting in his own strength. And so when he sees the weakness of David, he assumes that David is powerless. And David's Christianity, we have to admit, did indeed look powerless, okay? But that's a dangerous assumption that humanists make all of the time. They think God's never going to intervene on our behalf. Uh, they, They think that we are powerless. Now, they are right if we, too, think we are powerless, right? They're going to be right if we have no faith in God because then God's not going to act on our behalf, But it is a dangerous assumption humanists make. It's a fatal assumption, in many cases, if we have the faith of David. So, 
Expectation, very, very important. And unfortunately, it's easier for Christians to adopt the assumptions of Goliath than it is for them to adopt the assumptions of David. It's way easier to adopt the assumptions of of Goliath. Christians today think that standing up against Goliath is hopeless or that using David's religious words are hopeless. We'll be a whole lot more effective if we use secular arguments, manipulation, pitting one person against another, maybe in some cultures even bribery and and blackmail. They think we're going to be more effective if we fight with the kinds of weapons that the Goliaths of this world use. But the expectations we have in our war of words really reveals what's in our heart. Are we walking by faith or are we walking by sight? I think it really reveals how we are walking. And this is true even in your uh, wars of words within your family. I think too many arguments between a husband and a wife. Now, none of you argue, do you? Uh, Too many arguments that happen between husbands and wives are not a dialogue between two people who trust God's truth to triumph. And they say, yeah, I want to know what God's Word says, and if it says that I'm doing something wrong, I'll repent. Let's discuss this. Let's sit down at a table. No, they don't do that. They use exactly the same arguments that Goliath did. Insult, intimidation, curses, sometimes curses, blackmail. You know where you're going to be sleeping tonight. And other kinds of arguments that are really only fitting for a Goliath. To you. They're not fitting for a David. And why do they do it? It's because their assumption is that such methods work better than God's methods. What could be more ridiculous than God's methods of servant leadership? You know, bullying leadership's more effective. What what could be more ridiculous than loving submission? What could be more ridiculous than taking the tactics of Romans 12, 9 through the end of the chapter, when he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He's basically saying, if your enemy hungers, feed him. You declare a war of love by doing good things to people who do bad things to you. You bless them when they curse you. What could be more ridiculous than that? What could be more ridiculous than really trusting God's spirit to change somebody's heart? I've got to be out there changing his heart. And so we tend to look by, by sight instead of operating by faith. Let me tell you, when you operate by faith as David did, you see God opening up and working. As long as you're trying to control the situation, God says, okay, I'll let you struggle and be frustrated. But when you're willing to give your relationships to me and trust me to work through my means, then you're going to see remarkable things happen. Now, let's take a look at David's expectations. David expects that God's presence is real, his power is real, his promises are are true, that doing things his way are going to be worthwhile. Verse 45, then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Now, there are three things that David believes are powerfully present in this verse. First of all, he believes that God, even though he cannot see God, he believes God is present, that God is with him. And if God is with him and for him, no one can be against him. He is absolutely confident in God's presence. Now, Goliath is religious as well. He believes in God's. But he doesn't really believe and trust the gods to be doing uh, anything. He's more trusting in his own strength. David says explicitly, I'm not trusting my sling. I'm not trusting these tools. I'm trusting God to work through these things. But it's God and God alone that I am trusting. And so walking by faith means 
But God is part of everything that we think, say, and do. If you try to use secular arguments to get your way, you're automatically ejecting God from your war of words, and God doesn't take kindly to that. He doesn't reward it. Here's what Jesus said. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. So he's talking about being ashamed of Jesus and his words out there in the public square, the secular public square, right? He says, of him, the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. And so our war of words reveal whether we think man is bigger or God is bigger. And too many, too many times in our war of words, we're so fearful of man. Man is far bigger than God in our eyes. Secondly, David invoked the name of God. I come to you in the name of Yahweh of hosts. Now, this is a powerful concept, and I'm going to park on it just a little bit longer because so many Christians don't really know what it means to do things in the name of God. Uh, in the New Testament... Well, let me, let me first of all explain. What does it mean to do something in someone's name? And why is it that, uh, just taking casting out demons, why is it that demons will not leave if you do not cast them out in the name of Jesus? You can try as much as you want. They will not leave. What is there that's powerful about using the name of Jesus? And it's not in a magical way. I think we have a misconception if we think just, you know, putting the name of Jesus all over the place is going to do something. Coming in the name of someone means coming in the authority of someone, with the authorization of someone, representing someone. So if you come in the name of the law, you're representing the law. Come in the name of the king, you're representing the king. In the New Testament, he calls us to pray in the name of God the Son, Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves. Jesus means Yahweh saves. And if you do anything that is not in the name of Jesus, it will fall to the ground because your whole identity is tied up in the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything. And the reason everything's tied up in the Lord Jesus Christ is because you died in 30 AD. As far as the law is concerned, you no longer exist. You deserve the death penalty. Jesus became your substitute. He died. When you died, the law says, okay, Phil Kaiser's dead. Now, that means if I'm dead legally, I can't contract a marriage in my name. I cannot get an inheritance in my name. I can't sign any spiritual checks on my bank account in heaven in my own name. Why? Because I cease to exist. It's going to bounce. The check's going to bounce if I do it in my own name. In fact, if I do it in my own name, the law's going to come after me. Oh, Phil Kaiser's alive. Boom. I've got to kill Phil Kaiser because I deserve death. So the fact that I died in 30 A.D., Came to life in Christ means I've got to do everything in his name. I write my spiritual checks in Jesus' name. He's authorized me to do so. Now, let me give you some scriptures that prove that he has authorized us to do so. In the New Testament, we're commanded to pray in his name, John 16, 26. Gather in his name, Matthew 18, 20. Cast out demons in his name, Mark 9, 38. Work miracles in his name, Mark 9, 39. Preach remission of sins in his name, Luke 24, 47. Are justified in his name, 1 Corinthians 6, 11. Plead with people in his name, 1 Corinthians 1, 10. Give a cup of cold water in his name, Matthew 10, 42. Trust in his name, Matthew 12, 21. Receive a little child in his name, Matthew 18, 5. And Colossians 3, 17 says, okay, let's quit listing all of these things. It says, whatever you do 
in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So when we come to our Goliaths in the name of Jesus, it means we are self-consciously sitting with Christ in the heavenlies. We're united with him. We have authority with him. And we are coming as representatives of the Lord Jesus. Now, the third thing David believed in was the presence of numerous invisible angels. The verse speaks of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. Now, David knows God is not only raising up an army of humans. He is already the commander of heavenly hosts, hosts of angels. Now, Goliath may have looked pretty big. Nine foot eleven is what uh, the smaller size is. Some people say it was the bigger size, but we'll go with nine foot eleven. He was a big guy, but if he even got a tiny glimpse of one of those majestic angels, he would be so fearful, like Daniel, he'd fall on his face, even without a rock in his head, okay? Those angels are incredible. Yet what do Christians do? We rarely even think about these angels, let alone ask that God would use these angels, call upon God to send these angels to work in our lives. We almost never think about them. And without faith, those angels are frustrated in their warfare. If you want to get a tiny glimpse into the relationship between our faith and our prayers and what angels can and cannot do, read the first few verses of Revelation 8 or read through Daniel chapters 9 through 11 and see the connection between Daniel's prayers and his faith and what the angels were able to do. It really is a remarkable thing. For example, in Revelation 8, here's all of these armies of angels and they're sitting there not able to do a thing. Why? Because there's silence. There is no prayers. As soon as the prayers ascend from earth mixed with the prayers of Christ the incense there, what happens? Immediately, the trumpets sound and regiment after regiment of angels are sent forth and they're bringing all kinds of their devastating judgments, their redemptive judgments to advance the kingdom of Christ on earth. Now, it's an unseen power, but it's real. And we must be taking these things into account. Now, Goliath is still going to mock. He's going to think, yeah, right, that's ridiculous. But it really doesn't matter. Uh, Jonathan and Joel, they listened to some tapes and they got this uh, illustration. I don't know if it was from Bonson or somebody else, but people say, you know, when, when they mock at the power of the gospel, he says, do you just put it away? They, they, he likened it to a gun. You know, you're holding out your gun and, and somebody's attacking you and you say, no, you better back off. And they say, oh, I don't believe in guns. You don't say, oh, okay, and put your gun away. No, you pull the trigger and make a believer out of him, right? <laughs> Well, the same is true of the gospel. They don't believe the gospel, but you pull the trigger of God's word and you make a believer out of him. Now, God's the one ultimately who makes the believer, but as you bring God's word, it's not your testimony that converts people. It's God's word that is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. So you bring the word in. You invoke the name of Christ. You call upon his angels and you realize they are ministering servants who were designed by God to be an aid to God's people going forward. So every time you go to City Hall, you ought to gather together and say, Lord, send your angels. Send your angels to blind the eyes of those who are seeking to promote evil. Send your angels into this room to give wisdom and to protect those who are seeking to advance justice. You pull the trigger. And I think we need to have assumptions and expectations of David. Too many evangelicals are practical deists. They'll say they're, in their theology, you know, they're orthodox. But in their practice, they act as if 
God and angels and other things aren't real. They're not trusting them moment by moment to be working in their lives. Okay, the third thing that I see as quite a contrast in this war of words was what Goliath and David each got offended over. Okay, they both get offended, but they're offended over quite different things. Verse 43 shows that Goliath is personally offended. So the Philistines said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? I mean, he's insulted that he even has to fight this little guy here. Am I a dog? And so you can see there's an offense in those words. Now, I want you to notice that David does not take personal offense at Goliath's mocking, cursing, and hatred. Look at verse 45. He says, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. David's anger is a righteous anger. Why? Because it is God-centered. It grieves him that God's name is being trampled into the dust. I think this is one of the reasons he's upset with his brothers and the other Israelites. How come you're not doing anything about this? This guy is tearing down God's name, God's kingdom. And I think too many times in our wars of words, we are offended for Goliath's reasons, not for David's reasons. We're offended because our pride is hurt with what the other person has said. Or we're offended because, um, you know... um, They don't believe us, or we can't convince them with our brilliant words, (laughs) you know, and they're just too thick-headed to to submit to what we're thinking. We're not trusting in God to be working through those things. So our offense is a humanistic offense. It is really not God-centered. We need to ask God to give us such a passion for His will and His name to be lifted up. We're willing to be insulted. We're willing to be persecuted so long as God is glorified. And if we have humanistic reasons for why we want our prayers to be answered, we're not praying in Christ's name. It's totally inconsistent with praying in His name. We're not praying according to His will. We're not praying according to His glory. And we're not representing His interests in our prayers. So examine the nature of your offense in your war of words. It too reveals a lot about your heart. The fourth thing that I see in this war of words is, is that it revealed the true nature of their respective religions. Now, Goliath had a religion, and we know that because verse 43 says, and the Philistine cursed David by his gods. But the Philistine's trust was really in himself. In verses 8 through 9, all Goliath can think about is how strong he is and uh, how good he is, and he promises to prevail. And we see the same humanistic arrogance in verse 44. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. So his religion is man-centered. Well, it is my contention that every religion in the world, except for true Christianity, is man-centered. Where does it start? It starts with man. Actually, there are some branches of Christianity that start with man as well. They have become partially Uh, humanistic but they start with man's efforts with man's partial goodness with why the the gods ought to you know do something because they've done so much for the gods a kind of manipulation approach that uh, goliath had and in total contrast true christianity says that men are dead in their trespasses their corpses they can't lift a little pinky pinky finger uh, you know in, in terms of response to god until god Uh, raises them from the dead. And actually, it starts long before that, long before we're even born. 
True Christianity says God predestined a certain number that cannot be increased or decreased to salvation. Jesus died for his sheep, a certain number that cannot be increased or decreased. The Holy Spirit regenerates to himself a certain number who cannot be increased or decreased. And as soon as they come to life, which is also called a new birth, babies don't have anything to do with their birth, do they? John says that we're born not according to man's will at all. It's only according to God's will. So as soon as they are born, what happens? They, they cry, right? They, they look. Uh, they, they reach by faith. But even that faith, when it reaches for Christ's righteousness, it doesn't deserve anything. It's simply saying, yes, Lord, I believe in your salvation. I repent. And so it's 100%. It's, uh, the, the Reformation cries were grace alone. Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Even sanctification is 100% of grace, even though that's a thing that we are very involved in. We're not passive like we were with justification. In sanctification, some people think that it's a 50-50 proposition where you're cooperating. You've got to contribute some, and then God will contribute some. No, it's 100% God working in you His grace so that you can 100% be active and working out. You can only work out what God has worked in. Let me read you Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. There it is. It's 100% God, but it's 100% us, right? We are working out what he has worked in. Now, this is quite contrary to Goliath's religion. Now, look, look at David, what he says in verse 46. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. So David's involved. He's not a robot. Very, very involved. But he attributes, he attributes it all to God, because he realizes apart from God's grace, he could not accomplish it. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. So there it is. It is grace alone that strengthens David. And once David gets the victory, he attributes it all to God. So here's yet another way in which we can test our wars of words. Do your wars of words testify to your a trust in yourself or do they testify to a trust in God? You know, even when you're engaged in, in apologetics and you're skilled and everybody you talk to is just devastated and humiliated, their mouths are shut, you, you can get yourself into trouble because you can just feel this pride. Yeah, wow, I'm, I'm a pretty good apologist. I can really war really well with my words. And you can be deviated away from a trust in God. God's the only one who can change people's hearts. So by itself, the tool is not what saves. It's God saving through those tools. Likewise, we can become uh, Christians who have a religion of humanism if we're not careful. Many people will not do the right thing because they say, ah, I just don't feel like it. So what's the ultimate authority in their lives? It's their feelings. Or others will say, I don't see what's the big deal is. Everybody does this. So what's the ultimate authority in their lives? It's what everybody else does. Or some people will say, well, science has demonstrated. So what's the ultimate authority there? I, th I think you get the point. It's very easy for us to begin to adopt humanism and our war of words must reveal true Christianity. And I think the war of words for many Christians, they're just embarrassed by God's law. 
Now, the last contrast I see in this war of words was the contrast between the confidence of Goliath and the confidence of David. Uh, In verses 8 through 9, Goliath is quite confident in his own strength. And you can see the same uh, same confidence in verse 44. Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Now, here's the point. We're going to be seeing in the future that his confidence was misplaced. He gets killed, right? And we, too, do not need to be intimidated by the confidence of evolutionists who just like to call you stupid, you know? It's just obvious that that creationism is wrong, you know? We ought not to be intimidated by the confidence of liberals who think it's the height of idiocy to interpret the Constitution according to original intent, okay? Don't be intimidated by them. Their confidence is an ill-founded confidence. Now, take a look at David's confidence. He's no less confident, but his confidence is in God's revelation, purposes, power, and methods, and not the tools he was going to use. Verse 37, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Now look at verses 45 through 47. It just exudes confidence. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into, his, into our hands. Now, we saw last week that this was not presumption. God had already, already revealed that David would not die on the battlefield this day. Okay, He doesn't give exactly the same promise to us. But we can have the same confidence in whatever God's word commands, promises, or gives a theology about. We can have an absolute confidence. He is a God who cannot lie. But here's the thing. That theology, those laws, those promises have absolutely got to grip our hearts. They've got to frame the way in which we engage in this war of words. And so really this sermon is a challenge to rethink what our words reveal about us. You can just take a quick look at your, 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 your outlines there. Is the goal of our words... A self-serving goal? Is it a God-glorifying goal? You can tell by whether your goal requires faith or not. <laughs> you know, is it a big goal? The expectation or the assumptions of your word, are they worldly assumptions and expectations or are they driven by God? The offense that's revealed in our words. Are you offended because your pride's been hurt or because you can't convince people with the brilliance of your words? Okay, or are you offended because, oh, God, I want your name to be lifted up. I want the good of this person. I want your kingdom to come, your will to be done. Uh, the religion revealed in our words. Christians can adopt a partial syncretistic religion, you know, by adopting humanism in our thinking. The confidence revealed in your words. Uh, you know, I can tell when I'm confident in my own self and uh, when I'm confident in God. When I'm confident in my own words... I get easily frustrated when the thick-headed person is just not getting it. 
when I'm confident in God, it doesn't bother me. I realize God's the one who's going to open up their minds. I'm the messenger. It's not up to me to change their hearts. I don't get upset. I don't get... And so you can find yourself vacillating between a false confidence and a confidence in God where you say, okay, Lord, I think I've been a faithful messenger. I'm just going to trust you. I'm not going to pester my wife or my husband. or my. I'm going to just be faithful to use the tools that you have given to me. And so let's just make a commitment this morning to first of all be willing to war with words. I haven't even dealt with that subject and I won't, but be willing to war with words. But here's the most important thing. When you do so, Ask God, Lord, I know how easy it is for my flesh to kick in when I start warring with words. And so I pray you would sanctify me. Sanctify me in my speech. Help it to be gracious speech, seasoned with the salt of your grace, that it might edify, that it may build up. Help me to trust you. Help my war of words to be characterized by your grace. Amen. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your war of words against us. And we want you to win. We want your words to have their way in our lives. Please, Lord, have your way. Sanctify us. Uh, With uh, uh, Murray McChain, we say, uh, make us, Lord, to be as holy as it is possible for sinful creatures to become. Uh, Father, even in this last week, I found myself, uh, you've said in the multitude of words, there is no lack of sin. And I found myself sinning with my words. And Father, it's so easy for us to... Uh, vacillate and not be consistent in the way in which we war with words, but may we do so. Uh, uh, May we be more and more perfected, growing in the grace of your Son as we use our words to build up your kingdom, to glorify your name, to build up your people, to encourage them. May they be motivated by love and not by bitterness, by hatred. May every aspect of our words that need to be sanctified by your Spirit Uh, May you have your way in us this morning, we pray in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.